Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Hannah Farrah, Chief Executive of Carnell Farrah, the specialist management consultancy dedicated to the healthcare industry. Hannah has recently been recognized as one of the top 100 women in healthcare leadership. So naturally, I couldn't wait to sit down with her for this interview and explore her incredible career journey. Following a successful career in the NHS, Hannah and her co-founder Ruth Carnell decided that the time was right to strike out on their own and set about launching Carnell Farrah, or CF as it's now known. Launching your own business is a daunting enough prospect, but even more so when you're a single mother with two young children to support, something that we go into detail on in today's show. Since starting the firm over seven years ago, CF has gone from strength to strength, growing from just the co-founders into a firm of over 70 consultants working across healthcare and life sciences. If that wasn't enough, alongside her packed schedule running CF, Hannah is also a member of the King's Fund General Assembly Council, a non-executive director for Lantum, and co-author of the book Healthcare for London, Reflections on Leadership, Lessons and Legacy. We cover a huge amount of ground in today's conversation, and there's a ton of valuable insights for you in this one, including why and how 
Hannah made the leap from a successful career in the NHS to launch Carnell Farah and her key lessons for anyone thinking of doing the same. Hannah's candid experience of growing a business as a working mother and her advice for any other parents out there on how to achieve the often difficult balance of creating both a successful career and a successful home life and the unique obstacles that women face in the consulting sector and Hannah's take on what the industry needs to do to overcome them, both for junior consultants climbing the ranks, as well as for senior leaders running their own consulting firms. As we recorded this earlier in the year, COVID-19 is actually the one topic we don't speak about. But as I know many of you are getting tired of hearing about it, I'm sure that'll be music to your ears. That said, given the current environment, I couldn't be releasing today's interview with Hannah at a more appropriate time. And it was fantastic to get her perspective from being on the front line of change and transformation in healthcare. If you're a working parent yourself, you're thinking of moving into healthcare, or you're considering starting up your own consultancy business as a result of the current economic situation, then this episode is a must listen. So with the intro done and dusted, sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Hannah Farah. Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm really pleased we've hit record because we've been, been chatting for a good while now. And I was just really worried that we we might end up having a great, great conversation that no one else gets to hear. So thank you and apologies for just cutting in. But can we start where you were going? So just for everyone listening, we're in your office uh, in Hammersmith, got a lovely view out over London. And we were talking about your very nice branded bottle. And I will pass back over to you from there. My branded water bottle, which I'm taking a slug out of. Basically, the the kind of backstory to the branded water bottles is not last summer, the summer before I ended up going to Stanford and doing a program for executives of growing companies. And it was a great opportunity just to stand back and reflect on where we'd got to and the next stage of the development of the company. But there was a session within this program, which was about performing at your peak and the five habits for top leaders to perform at their peak. And one of them was hydration. And um, it'd be fair to say that of these five habits, that and one other, which was sleep hygiene, I would think. Actually, there was a third, which was um, the practice of slowing your breath and doing that regularly. Basically, that's, that's what I meant by the practice of doing it, slow breathing. So you can do that either through meditation or through yoga. The other two were nutrition and exercise. So I could tick those two better than I could the other three. <laughs> anyway, so... I was taken by the five, particularly because sometimes don't necessarily have all the energy that I need to do the things I need to do. So I embraced all of them and uh, got everyone in CF a branded water bottle, which I quite like. <laughs> and so do some of our clients. So I give them away uh, <laughs> occasionally as well. You can have one if you want. <laughs> Thank you very much. It is, it is a very nice water bottle. And I think those five things are they're quite powerful in their simplicity because they sound really obvious, but actually how often do we forget to actually to do those things? And you, you mentioned that the ones that stuck with you, you know, you had ticked some off the list. I'm intrigued. How was this session delivered? Because if I think about it, you know, you've gone to Stanford, 
obviously you've you've invested a lot of time and money to be there i'm sure the session you know, well, hopefully the session wasn't just do these five things and you'll you'll be a better leader go back out to to break I mean, what were some of those key insights i'm just I'm, I'm really interested if there was anything that the the professor or the the instructor linked back that sort of made you think wow i really need to fix that hydration issue so it was a professor and it was a little bit like a lecture in its delivery. But what they did was show us the evidence base behind why each one of those matters and in terms of the impact that it has on your brain and your capacity to deal with stress, which the other side of that would be how to have more resilience or how to have more energy. And I was not disputing any of the evidence that he was presenting. So I, I couldn't quote it back to you. I remember the charts and how they looked and particularly the one about the practice of slow mm. Yes, yeah, so I, I was keen to hear about that one. Well, I, the, so the evidence base for that one is that over time it will reduce stress levels in the brain and therefore you could say well it will reduce stress but if you think about people in leadership positions actually what it does is increases your capacity to manage stressful situations so things that other people might find stressful you're not there yet in terms of your tolerance for what you're dealing with so the two things they recommended were meditation or yoga and obviously through yoga practice if you don't pick the one that they do in a hot room and it's very sweaty <laughs> <laughs> which I obviously haven't <laughs> yoga was the thing that I did because I like exercise mm. it was about bringing some more of that into my life and it starts and finishes with some meditation and the techniques involved in doing that and control of your breath which I find useful in all sorts of different work circumstances as well, having more control over your breath. I'm an advocate. I think it works. It's worked for me 18 months on. <laughs> well, and I completely agree. I, I've, I've not been quite doing it for 18 months, but I have tried to reincorporate meditation for, for exactly the reasons you say. And it really does help you manage that stress. I think it's it's very easy to forget about these simple things. I think in today's world where everyone's trying to sell you the latest approach or the latest technique or the latest gadget, actually stopping and breathing can have really big impacts. Um, I do like yoga, but I, I, I always struggle with the breathing element because I'm too busy trying to figure out how to do the do the pose and not fall over. You know, we talked about how I'm tall. Tall people are not designed for yoga. Or maybe you'll correct me. Maybe you'll say there's a seven foot person in your class and it's I'm just me. Five but... foot ten, so I'm not exactly <laughs> a short woman. <laughs> um. Fine, it's it's just me. And just to hold on the the course, we will come back. By the way, to actually the the origin story and what led you to that. But what was it that made you? decide to go on that course? Because obviously taking that time out of your business is, is quite a big thing to do. How, how long was the course? It was 12 days. There wasn't a break for the weekend. I mean, partly for the reasons that you say people are taking time out of work. So it was quite intensive. But I mean, CF was probably about five years old when mm. I did it. And the nature of growing a business is pretty intense. And the nature of our business people business and wanting to invest in and support the growth of talent, I think it's quite easy to prioritize everybody else and not your own. Mm. And yet, actually, my own development is critical to my ability to lead effectively across the business. So it felt 
like I needed to invest some time into myself and doing it in such a way that would help me to lead the business more effectively. And while I came into doing this, having a lot of lessons from, you know, my career up into starting CF, which was in the public sector, what I'd not done was run a company. And, you know, there are days when you think you're making it up it. So a program that had people whose backgrounds were similar to me, i.e. a program for people who were trying to grow a business, because I think as much about a program as about the cohort of people that you meet and the relationships and experience that you get from other colleagues on the program, as much as the content of it and the breadth of things that it was covering felt like it suited me at that point in time. So you mentioned there around the journey you've been on and uh, it's slightly remiss of me. Usually I start these interviews with a uh, an overview of the guests so that people who who maybe don't know them, them can find out a bit more. So you mentioned you did this at about four or five years into the CF journey. Maybe we should take a, a sort of a rewind and, and it'd be great to actually find out for those who, who maybe don't know you so well or haven't come across CF before, actually... What was the origin story? How did you get started and what was it that led you to launch the business? The origin story, it, it's not re- it doesn't stem from any kind of master plan. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago what I was going to do, I, I was going to work in the public sector. I was going to work for in-house, for health, and that's what I thoroughly expected my career to be and to look like. And with the 2010 government, they did a massive reform of the NHS. And I worked at the time for an organisation called NHS London, which was the strategic health authority for the NHS in London. And I loved my job and was passionate, committed, thoroughly proud of what I did. And that organisation in this set of reforms got abolished. And I had to think about what I was going to do. And I was relatively young for the position that I'd found myself at at that point in my career. And the job landscape was very challenging in the NHS at my level of seniority. It was a big contraction and other people had more experience than I did with tenure, uh, so to speak. And I also had some real constraints on my life with young children and willingness to relocate. At that time, I, w- I was a you know a single mother with two boys. So the thought process was a bit like, well, what am I going to do? And through uh, the, the organization I worked with got abolished in 2013. So it was quite a drawn out ending <laughs> to my career in the NHS. So, so did you know... How long did you know that you were going to be made redundant from that role? Was it was it that three years or? No, it was probably it was a couple of years that I knew that I was going to get made redundant. I guess I still thought I was going to have something else. So even though the something else wasn't defined, I just expected that a the right job would come around for me within the NHS system, and so I would say probably only in the final six months did it really begin to crystallize for me that 
that wasn't necessarily going to be the case and I had to think about other options. And that's where founding CF came into it. So uh, other management consultancy companies were interested in hiring me and that caused a kind of chain of thinking about did I really want to do that or would I actually like to set up my own one and Ruth was had been clear for some time that she was no this was this decision around this set of reforms were that was therefore the point at which it was the right decision to move on and if I'm honest I was drunk one night in a bar (laughs) with her and we decided we were going to take this leap of faith which for me felt like it was a big risk being used to working in the public sector to saying I'm going to create a startup with two young kids hence the need for alcohol but nonetheless (laughs) that is what I did that is uh so I I'm running my own business now and I've had a number of guests who have have founded their own businesses like yourselves I'm always fascinated on what makes people make that move because I, I know so many people and speak to so many people who who choose not to or decide they for whatever reason they can't so I, I really want to dive into that but just beforehand because again I appreciate you mentioned Ruth there who you co-founded the business with how did you two know each other had you had you worked together at NHS London was it a, a friends how did that conversation even start for you to say yes in the pub that night So she was the chief executive of NHS London and I was on the board as one of the director team working for her. But I've worked with her off and on since I think it was about 2003 that I first met her. So we worked together in the Department of Health, off and on in different roles and then for must have been about seven years might be getting my ears quite a little bit wrong but anyway we worked together I worked for her um so that's how I I know her and um we make a good team I like working with her she likes working with me so and you mentioned you'd spent your career up until that point in in the public sector am am I right Ruth was was a similar background had she got a she'd been in consulting before or was she public sector sort of for her whole career as well The NHS likes to have reforms. So she had a temporary period (laughs) out of it. I think the the reforms we're talking about, maybe it was it's either number eight, nine, ten in her career, something like that. So she had worked for a small period of time as a consultant, but a freelance consultant, as opposed to uh, what we embarked on doing in setting up CF. But otherwise, public sector through and through over 30 years. So long-standing career in the NHS. Wow. And so the reason I ask is because I'm really keen to find out about the early days of CF because I think, and and I'm sure I'll be offending someone here, so I apologize to whoever that is. But if I think about a lot of my guests, they have all, who have started their own firms, it's worth saying, they have come from a consulting background. So they have been in a, a, a big four or a boutique firm and at some point they've decided they'd go out on their own. So they they come with a A, an understanding of of what it's like to be a consultant and B, almost a, a blueprint for how to do that. It sounds like while I'm sure you'd worked with consultants and had a had a decent idea of what they did as a as a client, it, 
you didn't have either of those. And and (laughs) I guess I'm really interested almost how in those early days, almost what you asked yourselves in the pub to say, yes, let's do it. And then how did you build those skills so quickly to to make the business a success? Because like you said, you know, if you're a single mother, you've got two kids, you, you don't have, well, I, I don't know, but you don't have the luxury of, you know, years to figure this out. You've got to make a successful business. And I'm sure that was, you know, weighing heavily on your mind. So what were those those key questions you two asked each other? And then what were those early steps you you took to really set the business up for success? Well, partly, I mean, it goes back to why not work for one of these other bigger companies as opposed to setting something on our own. And if I'm honest, I couldn't get excited about it. And partly I couldn't get excited about it because of the way they're structured, because of the constraints on the offer. Ruth was used to being a chief executive. I was used to being a board member. Mm. And within that, there was a lot of autonomy to operate with even within the public sector in terms of decision making and choices and and so even at very senior levels and in some of the bigger companies I don't think it's very hard to influence and I think that what I believed in and what we've tried to do is something that's different that's differentiating and it is bringing our kind of value space to what we've tried to do but also recognizing the skills and capabilities that we have brought to our clients because of the depth of experience we have in the sector and i i did a the, i did the strategy role at nhs london so a lot of what i would call core consulting skill set were needed to be effective in that role and I was a client to a number of different consulting companies now for sure you uh, you know I didn't really know what I was letting myself into in completeness but I did have sufficient confidence to say well I don't want to do that and I do think we could offer something different and distinctive that the market needs so it was a little bit like a leap of faith and a judgment as much about what I didn't want to do as what I did. And I think that it's a, a really powerful um, point you make because I think a lot of people don't necessarily take that stock and say, what is it I want to do? And, and, and almost what don't I? So you know, take that decision point you, you did. Once you'd made that jump, you, know, you two had, had committed to this, you'd you got to work, you decided on the name, the, the proposition almost. What were those first, and, and if this is too far back, stop me, what were those first three, six, 12 months like? What, what were the things that when you started, almost you went in either thinking they'd be really easy and they were really difficult or or almost the other way around? What were those things that really really stuck with you that you remember from from setting up in the early days? I learned that it was really difficult to open a bank account. <laughs> <laughs> like, like stuck in the dark age type difficult you <laughs> physically had to turn up oneself and <laughs> we we got a credit limit for about 500 quid which you know <laughs> doesn't get you that many train fares does it <laughs> so it was some of the small stuff and we were joking but I do I mean I vividly remember what a pain I thought it was open trying to open bank accounts and 
credit cards and things that you take for granted, even in one's personal life and you for sure take for granted in a professional context, those things were remarkably difficult. And I think you don't expect them at all. You don't anticipate that's going to happen. But we were relatively quick at using the relationships that we have and the credibility we had to 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 win work and to provide the kind of support that we wanted to for for people so that obviously was a key focus in our first three to six months doing that but because of the relationships we held because we had this very deep understanding of the market given where we'd come from um, I think we were more successful more quickly on that front than I ever expected and the things that we found much harder were some of the basics about putting a business together which I had no experience of to kind of draw (laughs) to draw on. What were those basics because I've heard a lot of people talk about the challenges of selling which which obviously it sounds like because of your network and your reputations wasn't your challenge. So so what were those basics? Yeah, obviously, the, the bank accounts and the little things, but I imagine there were some, some more structural pieces as well. So what were some of those basics that you really had to work hard to, to put in place in those early days? So I wouldn't say it was the first, by the way, I don't want it to make it sound like it's easy to do selling because it, to- it totally isn't. Uh, so I only, I only <laughs> say that because I've... Three. I have talked to a number of guests about it over the last few shows. So it was not that it's exactly like, not that it's easy, but sorry, I cut you off. The first three were easy. What happened after that? So I was just saying it was, selling wasn't easy, but the, the I think some of the, the things that were, were most tricky, I don't know that I could say they, you know, they were definitely things that happened in the first three to six months, but obviously as we were growing and we were working out what we wanted to be, we needed to hire people. And um, while you can convince yourself to take this kind of crazy leap of faith that after a few margaritas, you might convince yourself it's a good idea, getting other people to think this was a secure job and with the kind of capability and talent that we needed to be a success is actually, I think, very hard in the early days. Now we have an analyst program. We have an annual intake into that. We get the most fabulous talent applying for that program you know and more talented people than we can can take to come in in our kind of September intake but at the beginning it's very hard to get people to take a leap of faith just because you have to come and work as part of CF because there's no track record for them to be confident in people have their own commitments how did you do that other than taking them to the pub for margaritas which might have been the strategy I don't know how did you go about getting those first few few hires you know and like you say that the ones that are almost the hardest to win but almost the most critical to your your long-term success go on a big kind of I mean by putting a lot of time at it I mean I would still say now we put a lot of time at the people aspects of the business, but personally engaging with people through a process and talking to them about their concerns and taking time over it. And then you do get people who it is the right point in their life. They want to do something different. We're a mission driven organization. And I think we attract talent now and did then who have a commitment 
and feel excited about that mission. And so that's the thing that I think hooked and has hooked people to saying, yes, we want to be part of CF. Yeah. And I think uh, some really powerful pieces in there and, and we will a bit later, I'm keen to dig into more of the the cultural side, because you know, I think that's such a core part of your story, as you say, and uh, has obviously stood you in good stead and you have awards, awards and award nominations to prove it. So I, I want to come on to that. I, I'm going to hold here and, and it might be we move on quite quickly, but obviously, so you, you highlighted there, so recruitment was a big one. Were there any others? And, and worth saying that three to six was just a friend, a question. So if if actually it's you know, the best one is sticking sitting at 12 or, or 24 months, almost... Were there any other of those those key challenges or or inflection points that you found along that journey that you hadn't had to deal with before in your in your previous roles? So the people agenda in its broadest sense is obviously quite different here to working in an established organisation. So how you do every part of the process. So if you recruit someone, you need to have a you know how are you going to develop them? What's their career path? You know, what training are you going to offer people? And when you're very small, and that that is a lot of structure and a lot of process. And yet, actually, it's at the core of people feeling satisfied in their job is how they're going to develop, what is their growth, where next. I mean, particularly the type of people who want to work in consulting. There is a lot of ambition and drive and want to to kind of develop and get on so you can find yourself not with sufficient kind of process plan and at points capacity to meet on the kind of real good quality talent management that you you want in place and you you need in place to be successful and I think that point runs I mean I've picked people because to me it's been critical for our success and equally at points along the the journey you know you you falter in terms of meeting up to what your staff want and need and what the business is at that size able to deliver on Um, but that the kind of having systems and processes in the widest sense in place commensurate with your size is a constant kind of growth challenge I think Mm -hmm. Um, when as you move through the different stages from growing from a startup which had two people in it to company of over 50 which we are today and we still want to grow further and you always have a part of your processes which can be underdeveloped in the last 24 months I'd say it would be our management information systems have needed a lot of attention in order to keep up to the size that the company is now. You mentioned there around the point that there's been those times that you faltered and, and like you highlighted, the management information is the, the piece for you right now. How do you identify those as you've gone from, like you said, two to, to 50 and, and on? How do you keep sort of on top of that to and, and almost identify where, you, where you're starting to see those cracks so that you know you need to, to build something on top of them? They usually pointed out to me by somebody. <laughs> is, is that how the, um, the management information piece came up? The management information piece came up because you can't answer all the questions that you need to be able to answer. And, you know, there was a point in the size of the company where I just knew it all off by heart. It, it was possible to retain all the information in your in your head. And there's a small number of people who 
need to know it. And then as you grow, you know, there's 50 people that need to know it and, you know, they can't all ask. It needs to be readily available and there's more information than you can reasonably expect yourself to keep in your head. So, and then you find yourself thinking, I want to know, you know, precisely what happened in this month or that month and um, what's the trend here or what do we think of our forecasting capability and you can't answer questions. And so <laughs> at that point, it's obvious <laughs> you you don't necessarily have the systems in place that are going to help you answer them because, you know, there seems to be six different spreadsheets that all need triangulating <laughs> and feels pretty labor intensive to answer something that should be easy. And it'll be my last last question on this, but I, I'm interested if if looking back, particularly for anyone who's who's going on the journey you've been on in terms of they're going to 10 and 20 and 30 and, and onwards almost, if you had to, you know, I guess like we have different ages in terms of where life has gone. So you, know, you have childhood, adolescence, adulthood, has it grown in that similar way? So recruitment was the the challenge for the sort of zero to tens. I guess what I'm trying to, to tease out is, was there a, a big thing that sticks with you at those certain growth stages or was it, am I, am I trying to simplify what was a much more complex uh, challenge to deal with? So, so how do you get the best from and get the best people so like your people agenda is a constant precisely what it is within that you need to focus on I think changes with the evolution of the business and where you're trying to go so right now we want we want to diversify and therefore um, we need some great diversity in our people and so recruitment again happens to be the thing that we're talking about so that you know the precise thing that needs attention or focus does I think change with the life cycle of a business and, and it's less that it's at each stage of this this continued development of improving your systems or needing systems and processes because it's not even a case of improving them because for sure you could over engineer something relative to your size and you can put more cost in as well relative to your size which is might give you a a brilliant or perfect system but it's a daft decision commercially so I think constantly being reflective about what I might describe as the more corporate operations to support the success of the business is just something you've got to keep doing. So I want to turn back to how I'd misunderstood you before around what around diversity and the, the reason for the the albeit quite bad segue was I'd noticed uh, I saw on LinkedIn the other day that you've been included in the women in healthcare leadership top is it the top 100 is that right yeah yeah congratulations thank you and I'd, I'd be really interested in your take specifically on and you know, take this as as women in consulting women in in the NHS or, or more broadly if you if you like but your take on on diversity and actually either what you're doing at, and or what our industry needs to be thinking more about to to attract and then retain you know, the best female leaders and, and help them achieve their potential well I'm really passionate about women in leadership positions bringing on women in leadership positions and I always have been I mean I've I, I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by a group of women who have offered me mentorship, support, told me what not to do, told me when I was being an idiot as much as, you know, they've called to be kind because 
I think it is hard uh, for women still today, although some of these women, I think, open lots of doors for people like me, but it's still harder to get to those leadership positions. And even in, well, in our client, or lots of our clients in the NHS, which is so dominated by women, you still see them disproportionately represented at the top. I think that it's still about women having to balance the burden of what they do at home. And it's not really a burden. I think it's an honor to be a mother, but the balance between the expectations and the role that I play in the family and what I need to do in the workplace and a lot of prejudice that can surround that. So when I got promoted to being a director within the NHS. I was pregnant at the time with my second child and a number of people were hugely critical of my appointment. Really? Very senior people who were critical of, you know, in my state, how could I be? And these are things they voiced publicly? Uh, Yeah. Wow. Uh, Well, and in not to my face, Mm. but to people who were decision makers in that context and in a way that it was obvious that I was going to hear that view. And was that just men or was that other women too? Dominantly men. Yeah, men. And lots of white men champion women and, you know, would describe themselves as feminists. Mm -hmm. So, but unfortunately, I, I think that some behaviors which women find very difficult prevail. I was having a conversation with a a senior colleague in the in the system just a few weeks ago and he was describing, you know, chief executive level discussions in which actually the two senior women in the room complained afterwards about the behavior of um, one of the men in particular. And they obviously felt that it was really inappropriate and he hadn't quite seen and felt it on those terms. So he could see it was bad. He didn't realize it was going to have that kind of an impact on them. And I think there's something about just the behavioral norms, the kind of assertion and the extent to which people like conflict or don't like conflict I mean, even if you look at the gender pay gap and a lot of the evidence behind that, it's not in the, you know, in sweeping generalizations, but lots of women won't argue for pay increases in the way that men will argue for a pay increase. And speaking very personally, I, you know, I I don't like talking about in when I worked in the NHS, like the idea I was going to go and say I deserved more money. I just wouldn't. But yeah, I'd be surrounded by other colleagues who just thought male colleagues in the main who would easily argue for a for a pay rise. So and there's something about society in the round, how it behaves, what it teaches women. And it starts at a very young age, I think, and then it infects and pervades in the way that we mm. we all work. And it's unconscious. I think it's a really profound point, as you say, that it starts much earlier than than work. So go back as far as as you want in terms of that timeline. But but what should should we society, the industry, be doing differently? How how can we both help women feel comfortable and confident to have some of those conversations, but also put in place, I guess the the counter to that of put in place structures so they they don't need to or don't feel they need to. Yeah, I, I mean. I know there's other people who are much better educated on this topic in terms of what really has impact than me. So I'm speaking from my own sort of personal biases. But 
I think like twofold. One is I have seen a, you know, a big strive in recent years about supporting flexible working and allowing people to operate in their own way, but trusting them that they're going to get the the job done, so to speak. And I think unless people really mean that and embrace that agenda, it is hard for uh, particularly women, because I do think that there is a disproportionate domestic burden that gets placed on them to operate at the highest levels and live the rest of one's life. I also think senior women, you know, me included, need to be honest about what it takes to put that work-life balance in place. And you have to make uh, sacrifices which people will judge you for, but also you have to accept that you don't have to do everything yourself. So and people often say, oh, I don't understand how you do it. I said I had always a single mother with two sons i actually have five kids now <laughs> so the only so when i hear and i really want to come back to that, the first thing i ask is how do you transport them that's my biggest question you know you can't get them in the back of a you know a, a normal saloon what do you do you have a minibus or <laughs> seven, seven seater does fine <laughs> there's lots of seven seater cars <laughs> available so i have three kids of my own and then um two stepchildren and uh, a partner now obviously. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so, so I have, and people say, oh, I don't, just don't know how you do it. But the amount of, just like in the workplace, we put support around us to do what it is we do. At home, I put support around me to do some of the things that need, need doing in the house and um, to ferry my kids about. Well, they're old enough to ferry themselves about in the main, uh, just the one that needs ferrying back now. Although at the weekend, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, well, uh, can, can you give some some examples? I, th- I think it's a really powerful, a really powerful point. And exactly like you said, you, you launched the business as a, as a single mum with two young kids. And actually, over those early years, what were some of those those structures or or systems you had to put in place or you put in place to enable you to have both that family life and and the work life that you wanted as well at home you mean well uh, i was going with at home but if there are some important ones in in work that you you also did to enable that it'd be fascinating to find those out too i'm just thinking for any listener who's who's in your position i'm sure they'll find that really valuable so i remember thinking, you know, I'm not a good mother unless I do all the laundry and, you know, I iron all their clothes myself and I um, get the costume for the nativity and (laughs) I bake the cakes for the cake sale or whatever else it is. And, you know, I vividly recall 1.30, 2am in the morning doing laundry and just thinking, what are you doing? And thought, this is just crazy or just crazy to think that you have to do all of this in order to think that, you know, you demonstrate your love to your kids who don't even know that I'm doing their laundry. <laughs> uh, so I put in a lot more support at home in terms of, you know, helping me do the housework and didn't see that was a reflection on my, you know, me as a mother. Another example would be I got promoted, this is when I was working in the NHS, when I got a promotion to a more senior level, I used every penny of my pay rise to get a nanny. And I think sometimes getting a nanny can feel like 
there being a substitute mother. And that's quite, you know, it's a hard decision to make to say there's this other woman who's going to be a constant in my children's lives and if anything be there more than me um definitely during monday to friday and you know will they want needs relate to her and not me and i see so many i i don't know that it gets spoken about that much but i see lots of other women kind of go through that thought process on or am i going to drive myself crazy and get my kids to nursery and then be time watched that i've got to pick them up by six o'clock or or whatever and so coming to terms with doing things like like that and how did you come to terms with that because you, you mentioned there that obviously you had that epiphany moment with the laundry, but that, that moving, and sorry, that wasn't to belittle it, by the way, it was, that obviously had a turning point. It was almost, you mentioned there that for all of the reasons you've said, getting a nanny is, is a massive step. How did you come to terms or make yourself comfortable with that decision? You obviously knew it was the right one, but you know you mentioned there that it is a massive step. How can others who are thinking about it, what should they be thinking about or doing to come to terms with it so they can do what they want from a work perspective too? Well, I have been blessed with, and I think most people could find other, you know, women who've been on a journey and they want to be on that journey themselves too and talk to them. So I have been blessed with people like Ruth, but others who have given me great advice and positivity and confidence in my choices when I've needed that element of reassurance. But also it was about thinking about rationalizing what of this is about is really about me as opposed to about the kids, because it's it was obviously better for them, even if it was difficult for me to to do what at the time felt like putting in a substitute mother. But actually in terms of their happiness, the amount of stability, routine, not racing them about just creating calm and happiness in their lives, it, it was the right thing to do for them. So I think if you orientate to them, to your kids, then and stop judging yourself negatively, you can make the right choices. You mentioned there around judging yourself negatively, and there's something that this may have been a non-issue once you'd, you'd made that decision, but was there any challenges for you or how, if you needed to at all, did you come to terms with with any of that sort of parental peer pressure because I can only imagine if all of the parents get together there will be pressures and social norms in what is expected a bit like you were saying there with your own internal challenges or do you see that for other women as a challenge and if so how did you get over that or comfortable with it and how can others do that as well so really that's I mean it's a good question It's, it's a tricky question I mean there are those challenges and partly society does judge make judgments and makes judgments about you know women you should be at home you should be at work should be both (laughs) and so you can't you kind of get it from all sides and so it's it I think I've always had an element of being able to just be confident with myself and in my decisions and listening to, to different perspectives and then just being able to kind of draw a ring around what really is about other people and what's really about me and I and say that because I think it's easier said than done Mm. um but 
everybody parents differently. And the thing is, you've got to find the way that's right for you, that balances off all the different things that you want to do with your life and how you want to bring up your kids, which will be on the basis of so much, you know, lived experiences on each of them. And then say, right, I've thought about that. That's the way I want to do it. And be confident that other people are deciding other things. And that's cool. You're doing it your you're doing it your way. And that really, I don't have better advice than that. Because otherwise these things just kind of niggle away with you. Everyone's got an a everyone's got an opinion otherwise. And you know, they're all different. So you have to have your own. Well, I, and I think it, I think it comes back to almost what we we're talking about—a completely different topic, but some of the simplicity we we're talking about earlier with the breathing or the yoga. You know, what, what you've just described, while not easy, is a is a relatively simple approach, and a, a, I genuinely believe not easy. But I think in today's world, it's so easy to get sucked into the latest book, or you, know, you only have to read the the Sunday paper to see the the latest parenting book or or method and. I'm sure London, like it is for everything else, there's 20 different ways to do things. And and if you read 10 parenting books, they will say something <laughs> different. <laughs> I deliberately read parenting books that were very different because I think then it helped me think about, oh, you know, that's one extreme, that's the other extreme. What do I think? What do I make of all of that? And what do I think is right? But for sure, there's no one opinion. So in that, I, I like that, divide, you know, I enjoy diversity and I think it's hugely valuable. And I think it's hugely valuable that people come at things from different points of view and will give you different input. And one of the things about getting women into leadership positions you know systematically is that people have to value diversity I do think that women will often make a different type of contribution to a discussion I mean we're making a sweeping generalization in saying that and I value different contributions across the board you get it from simply different personality types different lived experiences but you get it from from women in a different way than from men as well. I think there's a lot of evidence that backs that up. And you have to, I think, positively want to bring that diversity in in order to systematically kind of promote women into senior positions. And I completely agree with you on that. And and it might be, because you mentioned earlier around the the power of mentorship for you and the, the female mentors you've had, almost for for others who are in in positions like yourself where 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 they're at the top of the tree and, and it's their role to to bring those women through either what is it you do or or, you, or as a firm you do here at CF or, or what do you recommend to other female leaders that you you know in the NHS to to enable them to create the environment for junior women to thrive and grow into senior leaders so i do think there is something about actively promoting mentorship of senior women and then sorry, senior women taking the time to mentor people, particularly at different life points. So, uh, you know, where you start a a family, given that's what we've been talking about, is is a key example of a a point that really does change people's lives and how do they think about that. And 
get a completely different balance. I, I just think supporting women on that journey and other women who've got lived experience doing that is tremendously helpful part of the process. When CF applied to be part of the Management Consulting Association, it was the year of diversity. And so obviously as part of that, they looked at how diverse the CF workforce is. And don't ask me to tell you the stats because I can't do it off the top of my head. And I <laughs> definitely done no cribbing. But I mean, we were we are significantly more diverse than was well, was the average at the time or the norm at the time. And I remember somebody saying to me, it's stuck with me, saying to me, well, it's okay for you because you're you're a company that was founded by two women. And therefore, you know, women attract women. <laughs> so <laughs> it's perfectly straightforward. That's all that's all that that's all you need to do. We just Gosh. need to have more companies founded by women and we'll sort out the <laughs> The gender balance. I mean, it was interesting that, you know, it was thought to be straight, straightforward. There is something about it being more approachable for people to talk to me about it. And senior women in other consultancy firms have said, oh, you know, you wouldn't just have a coffee and couldn't we talk about how you've managed to do it. And I think that one of the things that's taught me is we we give people more flexibility over the decisions that they can make about their own time than I think some other companies do. And the more power and autonomy you can give people to controlling that and, and time, I think, you know, you have to trust that people are not lazy. <laughs> you know, just because somebody's working flexibly doesn't mean they're not working. And I think if it's like in building that people are going to get the job done and they might get it done in a slightly different way, but they're going to get the job done and having trust and confidence in that and being open to more flexible working, I think is pretty important. That was a, a brilliant conversation on a topic that actually I've not covered. We've done a lot on diversity before with, with other guests, but I really never dug into to that life of, of a working mother and all of the challenges that come with it. And I think it, it's hugely inspiring to hear someone like yourself who has achieved everything you have in, in that situation, because you mentioned around um, having to be flexible and having to to create the conditions for for working mothers. And I think you know what you're showing as a, frankly, as a role model is showing what, what you can do if you, you create those conditions and if others help you, as you say, the guidance from Ruth and, and the support as you built the firm together. So thank you very much for that because I'm sure it will help someone. Thank you. I want to come to the, the last two questions for today. And, and I say this to, to pretty much every guest, but I always wish we had longer. But I know that you know we're already late in the day and I know you're going later into the day. I have a train to catch back to, to Bath. So we have to have to round up, sadly. So last two questions. And these are ones that I ask every one of my guests. Take them as you will. So the first one is about books. So I'm a, a big reader, mainly business books. My last few podcasts have shown me I, I don't read enough fiction. But I've got a lot from books and I'd be fascinated to find out, and if it's not books, it's worth saying, take this question as you will, is is what is the book or books, you mentioned parenting books, for instance, what, what is the book or books that you found yourself giving or recommending to people most, those ones that have had the, had the biggest impact on you? So probably like a business book would be The Power of Moments. Has anyone talked to you about that? No, you, you are the first. And... 
we talked earlier about this program that I did on Stanford and I actually read it as part of that and it really resonated for me and as part of talking it through if you think about your life you don't remember it like a commentary you remember moments a snapshot an incident we've we've talked about some of those in in this discussion you know vividly recalling a moment and that moment changing things and so this book and and if you think about you know running a business or even just as a, a leader or a manager creating moments for people that matter so it made me think about the first day of work and how to make somebody feel so welcome that this is you know the place for them and they're we're happy that we're you know they're here not everyone's really busy and too busy to talk to them or how do we do our all company away days so everybody remembers it and think they had the best time and creating those with our clients as well in terms of how we do consulting maybe you know you're running a long project for somebody but is there a workshop or an event that really inspires people and that they will remember so that one worked for me and I recommend it to other people fantastic well I will put a link to to that in the show notes it's a really powerful point around those those moments and actually how you how you craft them. I'm sure they won't mind me saying there's, a, there's another agency who, who who gave me one of those recently where, and this sounds really silly, where I was going to meet the director of this other agency and, and his, his assistant emailed me to ask me what biscuits I wanted. And genuinely, and I know it sounds sounds ridiculous, but it, it stuck with me since then. And he, I'm, you know, David Gilroy at Conscious, if anyone wants to look him up, because it was brilliant, is it's those tiny things that matter. Uh, and I, you know, that's, I'm sure, like you say, it's those little things with clients and, and your team. So I'll definitely. And you can forget to tend to them. And this book was like, that is so simple and it's so right. That is what we remember. I mean, you like my water bottle, just giving everyone a water bottle, you know, it's a small thing, but, but it's what's uh, not to like about it. Uh, and, you know, that point itself of it's the little things, but in, in, by virtue of them being little, it's so easy to not do them because you focus on the big things. You focus on you know, take take your team. I guess you people can focus on what do we pay people, what's their bonuses, and actually, the best reaction I've ever seen is when a previous firm gave a gift to people, and it was a substantial gift. And I'm only not saying because I don't I don't know how public it is, but it was a significant gift, albeit in the grand scheme of consulting, you know, it was very little. But I've never seen a, a group of adults react the way they did to such a such a gift and actually if you'd been given the same as a cash bonus it would have gone out on the bills the next day so no completely agree and it is it, they're very very nice water bottles <laughs> <laughs> so so that was the the books piece um and no i love it's partly why i asked the asked the question i love getting books that i've not not read myself i'll also i will send you a copy of um delivering happiness by the founder of zappos i don't know if you've read that uh, brilliant book i will send you a copy because it's 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 autobiographical but very similar in in nature and the last question and this is really a chance to recap on some of the things we've talked about uh, a chance to to highlight points we've not i I, te- I let you take it where you want and and the question is really you have three people in front of you one is is your analyst who's just joined your your program here one is somebody who's manager level. So they're, they're in the middle part of that, that first stage of their career, if you like. And, and the final person is, 
I guess someone like you, when you decided to go out on your own, now that could be someone who's approaching partner in a, a traditional consulting firm or a bigger consulting firm. It could be someone who's thinking about going out on their own and starting their own thing. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So the, somebody starting, I mean, whenever someone joins CF, the thing that I always say to them is be patient with themselves. I think starting anywhere new, you know, there's a way we work around here. And that's true of every organization, it's culture, it's cultural norms, how you do things. And like nobody expects you to get them right from day one. And don't expect that of yourself. So be patient is what I say, get to know people, make friends, create relationships, and just take some time over getting started. Um, And I, I mentioned this before in consulting, I think you have a lot of hugely capable people who decide to go into consulting. And with that capability comes high expectations on oneself, you know, can't fail, never fail, whatever. And the reality is, we all learn more from failure than we do from success. So it's just that being patient with yourself. For managers, I often think managers got the hardest job in consulting. You know, they're they're like the front line with clients. They're in the middle of the, you know, they get it from the bottom, they get it from the top. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think I often think, you know, people are leaders at all different levels and all different points. So it's not, it's not a position, but from a position point of view, it's the point when I think there's an expectation that people begin to lead. And part of what one needs to begin to think about is the impact that you have on others and the influence you carry. And you're used to, I think, thinking other people are influential, but now you've got to get used to your being influential. So, you know, you may have worked, you may be used to, you may like working those really long hours, but if everybody thinks now that you're their role model, then what are you doing? So getting used to that you've become a role model and you're starting to need to role model for other people and beginning to see yourself differently in that kind of frontline leadership role. I don't know that it it always gets tended to in, in the kind of more structured development that people have or necessarily thought about in those terms, but that's a kind of key thing, I think, to think about at that point. And somebody at my level, whatever they're doing, starting a consultancy in a consultancy I don't know I guess a simple but important trick is learning to say no if they haven't done already which I think lots of senior people still struggle to do I mean so in starting up your own business knowing what to do and what not to do as opposed to just taking everything that comes your way because you think oh it's a job I should do it but you know equally I think just it, it is impossible to manage your to-do list unless you say no I'm not doing that this is how you know active choices about the use of your time and how you uh, prioritize and controlling it at, you know day in day out controlling what you do is the thing that I see lots of people struggle with and that would be my my big you know pointer to remember 
Fantastic. Well, some really, really good points there. And I think a great place for us to finish. So thank you so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. And it was great to dive into obviously a topic that you're so passionate about, so close to your heart. And and as I said, I think just shows what you can do if, if you put in those structures and, and, and arrange your life in the way that you want. Take control a bit like you just said there around your point to those approaching partner. You you decide what you want to say yes to, what you want to say no to, and, and build your plan and your, your life around that. So for anyone who's listened to this, they want to find out more about yourself, they want to find out more about CF, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. Okay. You can get in touch with us through our website, and all of our contact details are, are on that. So it would be lovely to hear from some people. And thank you for spending your time with me as well. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Not at all. It's been great. Well, thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.